Griffin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we feature a sermon from December 23rd at North Shore Vineyard entitled, Living the Incarnation in an Excarnate World. And we are looking at why the incarnation of Christ, Jesus, as God stepping into our world and becoming one of us, Emmanuel, how that is one of the most relevant things that we can pattern our lives after in a world that is coming apart at the seams, in a world where people are divorcing their words and their opinions from actual embodied relationships with one another. Some really good stuff here. And I want to invite anybody listening to this today, if you don't have somewhere else to be on the North Shore tonight, we are having our Christmas Eve service at 5 p.m. Lots of songs and candlelight. So come join us. Let's head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. I want to read the passage for today, which is on the front of your bulletin if you received one when you walked in. John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came to witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the lights. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I want you to think of a moment of the word saint and think of some adjectives or descriptors that come to mind when you think of the word saint. Now, real quickly, don't shout out Alvin Kamara or Drew Brees. Let's just get out of the way. Everybody say who dat. Who dat. All right. Who dat. <laughs> but talking about actual saints, what are some terms that might come to mind? Anyone? Holy. Pure. Oh, Augustine. I was like, I was thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. Augustine, who was saint, saint, saint Aug. Saint Aug, I like to call him. Anybody else? Any other just? Model? Selfless, fervent, martyred, yeah. There's a lot of terms that we could think of that when you think of somebody who is saintly, that we would apply to saintly people. They might be virtuous, they might be holy, spiritual, selfless, caring, compassionate. But one of the words that we don't often, well, you know, one of the biggest descriptions of a saint is not something that can be described 
with just one word because it has to do with an actual lifestyle. Whether you're talking about Mother Teresa, who was made a saint a couple of years ago, or St. Paul or St. Patrick or St. Francis, they all have this, it wasn't just that they were loving or compassionate or pious or virtuous, it's how they practice that virtue. St. Teresa, Mother Teresa, she grew up in Albania and she became a nun. But then she left the comforts of her own culture, the, the security of, of the world where she grew up with, her own family, her own friends, to go to a foreign land and to minister to some of the least on planet Earth, the people who were the most down and out on the streets of Calcutta in India. She spent decades comforting and caring for people with leprosy, people who were sick, people who were dying. Sometimes, and, and, and she, she said this on many occasions, that she wanted to, to give people an opportunity to die with dignity, no matter their background, no matter their race, no matter their religion. One of the reasons we call, saint, call, call Mother Teresa a saint is not that she was just loving and compassionate, but the fact that she left her comfort zone. She left her security to go be with people. Think about St. Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, nearly half the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. But it's, and, and I don't think many would, would argue with this, that the Apostle Paul is one of the most influential figures in the history of the world, certainly in, in Western civilization. And yet, when you read the writings of Paul, you don't read the writings of some academic stuck, stuck in some ivory tower just writing down theological musings and disseminating them to his disciples to, to you know, distribute throughout the Mediterranean world. Neither do you see a person who was just so spiritual that he just stayed locked up in a monastery all the time doing spiritual things. When you read the writings of Paul, you're reading the writings of someone who was getting his hands dirty. The apostle Paul left the comfort of where he grew up in Israel, and Judea. He left the comfort of his own culture, his own people, to go out there and be with people who were different, who had different customs, different ways of life, to help them live lives around the meaning, the life, the purpose, the love of Christ. And so many of the saints throughout the history of the church have had that aspect in common. And I think that's one of the biggest things that sets them apart from run-of-the-mill virtuous people. There is something about stepping away from your comfort zone and being with other people that are different from you that looks like Jesus. You know, one of my uh, favorite passages in the whole Bible comes from Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. In worship this morning, we sang a song that was actually inspired by these words. And Bible scholars will tell you that, that these words actually predate the writing of the Bible. They existed probably as a hymn in the church for decades before Paul ever wrote them down in Philippians. Paul didn't come up with these words. They, they were likely some of the, the earliest theology of the earliest followers of Christ. They were singing this song when they would gather together on a Sunday morning in somebody's house to worship Jesus. Uh, 
And Paul writes this, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. We can go home after that one too, but we'll, I, I want you to get your money's worth this morning. <laughs> I hear a hum. Mm-hmm. Something may be about to feedback, but you know, in, in, in recent years, I've heard a lot of conversations about privilege. People who have privilege, and oftentimes the, 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 the problem with, you know, having some sort of privilege is that you use that privilege to your own advantage, which is the, the most natural human thing to do. It, it doesn't happen, it happens without thinking about it. And yet we see in this passage the one who had the most privilege in the whole universe, God, <laughs> lays aside God's privilege and steps into our world and becomes one of us. See, I think if you and I were charged with rescuing the world, we would do it with shock and awe. We would do it with Steven Spielberg effects. We would do it with a, a, an internationally televised press conference. We would do it like, you know, if you see the inaugural addresses by presidents where there's, you know, a million people out there. We would do it like that. It would be this big pomp and circumstance. But when God wants to save the world, how does God do it? By taking the lowest path. Several decades ago, there was a, a famous professor slash philosopher from a university up in Canada, Toronto, uh, by the name of Marshall McLuhan. And Marshall McLuhan had focused much of his, his writing and his research on dealing with media and how media affects society and individuals. And he famously noted, probably his most famous statement was, the medium is the message. The medium is the message. Now, this is very contrary to what people tend to think, but it has borne out to be that that Marshall McLuhan was a lot more prophetic than, than he even understood at the time. There was no Internet around, and yet the things that he said are now just becoming known to us. What he was getting at is we tend to focus on information as the, the main issue with any form of media, whether it's books or radio or TV or social media, we tend to look at something like the Internet as it's neither good nor bad. It's just the content, you know, that is contained within it. But Marshall McLuhan was making a very perspective state, a a very insightful statement that our interaction with a form of media shapes us in much more profound ways than any information embedded within that medium. So, so for instance, I know over the last 10 years, I have read 
lots of studies from the field of brain science or social psychology that are beginning to discover that, that uh, the Internet is, is changing our brains, our interaction with the Internet. Has anybody found it a little hard to concentrate in the last few years? <laughs> I used to love reading books. I mean, I would spend usually one day a week, you know, a Wednesday morning, I would, that would be like my study day, and I would spend three or four hours reading in a coffee shop, reading. I, it's, when I sit down with a book now, I have to be honest here, confessions, it's like hard for me to read for 20 minutes. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, when you're reading a book, you come across a word you don't know, and then you touch it. To <laughs> 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 Where's that hyperlink? <laughs> if I'm going to read nowadays, I almost have to lock the computer up in another room, put my smartphone somewhere else, because there's just, uh, oh, this, this word reminds me of that. Let me go look this up on Wikipedia. Oh, well, let me check my email. I, gotta, I better check in with Twitter, too, while I'm at it, just to make sure the universe is still crazy. I, I actually read a book around the time we were starting this church called The Shallows by, by Internet uh, by uh, Nicholas Carr about how the internet is is changing our, our brains and they I don't know where they found these people but they found some people that had never used Google or Wikipedia and they put them in an MRI to scan their brain and within 10 minutes of using Google or Wikipedia for the first time your brain already begins to light up in new ways 10 minutes probably by this point 10 12 years after reading that book <laughs> I, I don't even want to admit how many hours I've spent online. But the medium is actually changing us. It's changing us. It's changing the way we understand things. And, and see, one of the biggest, most important things that I see of the Advent season is the focus on incarnation, God stepping into our world. And, and i got to tell you, if, if there's anything that is relevant for the world that we live in right now, it's that. It's that. If there's anything that, that br can bring some hope into this fractured, polarized world that we live in, it is the incarnation, what it speaks to us. If the medium is the message, then what does it mean that when God wants to tell us something, God does not just magically drop a book down from heaven, but God steps into our world and becomes one of us? What does that mean? What's the message there? Well, think about it when people have done that for you. When somebody loves you enough to step into your world, the folks that are there for you, when you go through hard times and when you go through suffering, what does that mean to you? See, incarnation has to do with embodiment. It has to do with presence. It has to do with relationship. Think about this. I am so in awe of this. God, when God wants to save the world, God becomes one of us. And not one of the rich, powerful ones of us, but one of the poor, one of the marginalized people on planet Earth. God becomes that which is lowest in our world to reveal his power and to reveal his love. But God spends 30 years. Jesus spends 30 years just being a a regular guy, before he does anything that he's famous for, for the three years that Jesus proclaimed the gospel and preached and did the stuff that he's famous for. 
If you break that down to a ratio, I'm no mathematician, but it's somewhere around like 90% presence for 10% words. The church in America, though, for the most part, has it backwards, don't we? 90% words for 10% presence. Instead of the incarnation, what we have been embodying is excarnation. <laughs> it's the opposite. Excarnation is, is when you divorce words and thoughts and ideas from actual flesh and blood relationship, eye-to-eye conversations. Have you ever sent out an email or a text or put a post on Facebook or Twitter that was misunderstood by somebody before? What's an email? (laughs) I have on more than one occasion. (laughs) Why is it that it is so easy to misunderstand somebody when you are just reading their words in an email or on a text or on a Facebook post? Why is it so? Because here's what happens. When you read the email, whose voice are you hearing? Your own voice. And when you're reading those words, you have to assume what the tone is. And that's why, you know, um, you know being sarcastic just never works the way you want it to be on, on social media or in emails. Like, you write something like, you're just a jerk, dude. <laughs> it doesn't work because you're not hearing the tone. I, I, I've read this before. 50% of communication is body language. is the tone of language, and only 7% is the actual words we say. Does this maybe shine a little light on why our world is so screwed up right now? We have disconnected our words from actual presence. We, we love, we love protesting things. We love venting our opinions. We love telling the world how we think about every th- single thing. But people are losing the ability to actually have an honest conversation with one another, look another person in the eye. I remember a few years ago, I, I tried this crazy experiment. I've talked about this before, you know, where I thought, I'm going to try to dialogue about theology and social issues on on Facebook, and we can all have a conversation and learn from one another. (laughs) Silly Crispin, what was I thinking? I mean, some of the posts were really popular. I mean, you got like 300 comments on them, but people were calling one another things and calling me things that I've never had people say things like that to me to my face. Because it's amazing when you have to look somebody in the eye, you're not that bold. It's amazing when you actually have to see the other person in front of you as a human being. You can't be that ugly. I remember when I came on staff at the vineyard on the South Shore as the worship leader down there. Um, it, it is funny how people get attached to, to certain worship leaders and, and feel the pastor there. He had been the main worship leader, and I come on. I think I'm all right, but there was a lot of people like, eh, we don't like this new guy, you know. And, and there were some people that, that sent, this, this is a long time ago, they sent letters in the mail, like the kind you put a stamp on. <laughs> they sent anonymous letters to me telling me how they didn't like the way I was leading worship. 
And I remember telling Phil, I was like, yeah, I'm getting like some anonymous hate mail for being the worship leader. <laughs> he goes, here's the rule. If somebody won't sign the thing, he said, throw the letter. Trust, he said, trust me. I've got a whole bunch of letters I've never read from people that didn't have the guts to sign it. May I have to wait for a second here? Okay. <laughs> but what we see going on in our world today is excarnation. I even read a study recently. This was, this was interesting that, that the rates of anxiety and depression among adolescent girls have been going up exponentially since 2010. It's been at right around 11% for decades now unmoved mainly. But since 2010, it's already gone up to 18%. It's, it's on track to double in the next couple of years. And what's the biggest thing that they're, they're, they're saying that is a part of it? It's one of these things. People don't know how to actually have conversations with one another when they feel these intense emotions about something. All of our, so much of our information is mediated between technology now so that we're losing the ability to actually look at another person, to see them as a human being, to hear from them, to understand their struggles, and for them to understand us. Because we put so much information on these excarnate forms of relationship. A few weeks ago, I, I interviewed a guy from my podcast named Jonathan Merritt. And Jonathan Merritt, uh, it, was, it was a bit of an intimidating interview because I've interviewed all kinds of people on my podcast. But this was my first journalist that I was interviewing. So, you know, he's written thousands of articles that have been featured on The Atlantic, USA Today, Washington Post, New York Times. And he had just written a book a few months ago that, that came out a few months ago called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. So I was, a little, I was a little intimidated because I'm like, I've never interviewed somebody who gets paid to interview people for a living. But um, it was a fascinating interview. I read his book. His book was really good. But in his book, he talks about how he grew up in Atlanta, the son of a Baptist megachurch pastor who was actually the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of that for a few years. So he grew up about as Bible Belt as you can get, and he, he ends up growing up, and then a few years ago he moves to New York City. And he found something interesting in New York City that there was a language barrier. He'd grown up in a culture where, where the terms about how to talk about God and religion and salvation and all that were obvious to everybody. He goes up to New York, and then all of a sudden, there are people who he's trying to have a conversation with about God, but they don't understand the terms he's using. <laughs> I mean, simple terms like, you know, sin, salvation, God, things like that. And so he, he began this kind of experiment over a period of a, a year, a couple of years, where every time he would come across some word that was just an important word in Christianity, instead of, you know, not using it, he would spend some time researching that word and digging into what that word actually meant. And, and so he could maybe come up with a, a, a new way of, of presenting some of these terms to, to people who were not familiar with any religious language because they did not grow up in church, which is a lot of New York City. And the passage that we read earlier today at the beginning of the service 
the word became flesh. When he got to that passage, he was like, hmm, the word became flesh. What is this word? Well, if you look in the ancient Greek, and I've mentioned this before, the, the word translated the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for the word is logos. Now, in Greek, logos is one of these, it's a really big word in Greek. It had been used by Greek philosophers for centuries leading up to the writing of the New Testament. But, there, you know, in one understanding, the logos could be understood as the, the unifying principle that holds the whole universe together. Big word, right? <laughs> the unifying principle that holds the whole world together steps into our world and becomes one of us. That's one way you can understand it. But it's interesting, as, as he began to research this word, what he uh, came across was the writings of one of the most prominent theologians uh, in the years leading up to the Reformation, a guy by the name of Erasmus. And Erasmus was actually in the process of translating the whole Bible into Latin and making his own Greek translation, and he was a, a very much one of the most revered Bible scholars of his time. And Erasmus kind of had a problem with translating this, this term into the word because he said the word is it, it feels very static. But he said, really, what's going on in this ancient Greek is something very dynamic. It's not just a word. It's a conversation. And so when I was reading Jonathan Merritt's book, he, he put in this translation from Erasmus on John 1. And I think it is a fascinating way to understand this passage that may be very familiar to us. So this is the same passage we read, uh, read on the, the front page, and it's this, translated by Erasmus in the late 1400s. It all arose out of a conversation, a conversation within God. In fact, the conversation was God. So God started the discussion, and everything came out of this, and nothing happened without consultation. This was the life, life that was the light of men shining in the darkness, a darkness which neither understood nor quenched its creativity. John, a man sent by God, came to remind people about the nature of the light so that they would observe. He was not the subject under discussion, but rather the bearer of an invitation to join in. The subject of the conversation, the original light, came into the world, the world that had arisen out of his, willing, his willingness to converse. He fleshed out the words, but the world did not understand. He came those who knew the language, but they did not respond. And those who did became a new creation, his children they read the signs and responded. These children were born out of sharing in the creative activity of God. They heard the conversation still going on here now and took part, discovering a new way of being people to be invited to share in a conversation about the nature of life was for them a glorious opportunity not to be missed. It's pretty good stuff, huh? It's not that Jesus was just the word to us. 
And I think that's a fine way to understand it. When God has something to say to us, God doesn't just say it, God shows us. I mean, after all, when you look in the Gospels, when Jesus is eating with sinners, when he's breaking bread, when he's healing people, touching lepers, you know, he is demonstrating with his life what love and forgiveness and peace and justice embodied actually looked at. Jesus didn't just tell the world about love, he showed us. He didn't just tell the world about forgiveness, he embodied it. That's one way of understanding it, but what Erasmus was getting at was it's not just a static word. It's a conversation. And this conversation, Father, Son, and Spirit, has been going on in eternity long before there ever was in us. And God steps into the world to invite us to be a part of this conversation, to join in what God is doing. But the implications of this understanding of this passage are, are, are quite profound as well. See, you know, one of the reasons I think the incarnation is so important and relevant in our world right now is if we are going to be people who say we truly celebrate the advent, the coming of Christ into our world, we ought to be people who live in the pattern of Jesus. You know, one thing I discovered a few years ago when I was doing my little experiment on Facebook, commenting on, on different issues and theology and stuff, I realized I had opinions on things that I had no experience with. Don't get quiet up in here. I realized that most of the things that I was venting about on Facebook were not things that I'd ever actually experienced. I had strong opinions on things of which I had no actual tangible understanding. They were abstract issues to me. It's kind of like back before I got married, I remember reading some books on marriage. And I listened to the Christian radio station. They had this family life program. I listened to that a lot. Oh, I got this. I got this. I got it all figured out. I know how this marriage thing's supposed to work. Until a couple of weeks into marriage, and I'm like, throw out all the books. Or how about like before we had kids? Remember how judgmental I was of other people who had kids. Like, why don't, you, why don't you discipline your kids more? Why don't you do this with your kids? Like, all of a sudden we get kids. I'm really like, oh, this having kids thing is a whole lot. <laughs> there's a lot more to it than uh, I had led myself to believe. It's amazing how our experience of life gives us some humility, doesn't it? <laughs> You're not so quick to talk when you've experienced some things. But on so many of the issues that people are getting, venting about on social media and cable news and the radio, most people have had zero experience with most of the issues that they're most passionate about. And I include myself in that. And so when it comes to, to different issues that are popping up, yeah, I've got my opinion that my knee-jerk reaction, is, as everybody does, but if I'll just sit and contemplate for a minute, have I ever actually experienced anything like this? If the answer is no, then what I'm trying to do more of is find some people that actually experience that reality. But you know what that is? That's incarnational people. How can we have strong opinions on things that we know nothing about? And so every issue that pops up now, 
I have learned so much from so many of my friends who actually experience a reality I've never experienced. It's changed me. But this is the hope of the world, y'all. This is why I think the message of Jesus is more relevant now than it's ever been. But the problem is most of the church has divorced the message of Jesus from the actual living out of Jesus, the ways of Jesus. To celebrate the Advent is to say, God, the same way you stepped into our world, the same way you took the low path, the same way you became Emmanuel, God with us, can I endeavor to do that with other people instead of just running my mouth? (laughs) It's okay to have opinions. We all have them. (laughs) But not every opinion is equal. Some opinions are really lousy because they're not based on reality at all. And the more that we can let our opinions be based on actually engaging with other people, doing the hard work of actually, when you got a problem with somebody, maybe even somebody in this church, don't just write them off. Call them up. Have coffee. Let's go talk. Same thing if you got a problem with me. Call me up. I'm always up for coffee. You know, let's not let fear and intimidation and insecurity Win. <laughs> Let us be the kind of people that can be open and honest with one another. And look, it's hard. I, I hate confrontation as much as anybody, probably more than a lot of people. Some people, some people I know are really good at it. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I've, I've noticed most of the time? I have very little regrets when I've gotten over my fears and actually stepped out and had a hard conversation with someone. I've never regretted sitting down and talking with people that are different from me in an attitude of trying to understand them, not to win them over to my side, but trying to understand their reality. I've never regretted that. Look, I get it. It's scary. But if we're going to be the people of Jesus, maybe that's one of the crosses that we have to bear. Maybe that's something we've got to die to, our fear of other people, of differences. Be the kind of people that reach out, connect, in an attitude of humility, in an attitude of peace, in an attitude of trying to understand. So when I think about what Christmas means to me, what, this is the thing. This is the central message. And I believe this is the hope of the world right now, y'all. More than it's ever been. More than it's ever been. All right. That's all I have to say about that. Why don't y'all stand up? <laughs> Never get, never get the ending quite stuck. <laughs> Wait, I still got a few more minutes. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> well, I just want to pray a prayer for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that you loved us not from a distance. But you loved us by stepping into our world. Lord, you didn't come with force and intimidation. You didn't come into our world pulling the God card. Lord, you took the lowest path you could. And it has revealed your great love and your great care for us, Lord. 
as people who follow you, who value you, Lord. Let us not value you only in words and thoughts and ideas, Lord, but let us be the kind of people that can get over our fear and actually engage in relationship with others, Lord, that can actually be present to others, that can actually go into conversations, Lord, in a spirit of humility, seeking to understand, seeking to listen, Lord. Give us the grace to do that, Lord. Help us to follow in your example, Lord, in your pattern, by your spirit, by your great love, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.